Let's pray before we get into this. Lord, thank you for this opportunity that we have now to delve into an important subject of gospel culture. Uh, Give us eyes to see what you desire the church to be, how you desire it to function, and uh, how you desire us to experience it week in and week out. Uh, Pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable to you. It's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. I'll, uh, I'll never forget the volume of her voice, the shade of red, her face turned, and the sound the door made uh, when she slammed it on her way out of the office that we were meeting in. Seventeen years ago, I was leading worship in the church I was a part of, and an issue had come up with one of the volunteers in our ministry, and it was something that that needed to be uh, addressed, but it should never have taken the turn it did that night. That night was just the beginning. Um, That night was kind of the, the launching of a campaign against me and some other leaders in the church. Over the next six months, we saw our church hemorrhage 40% of our people. Um, Clearly the darkest time I've ever experienced in ministry, Uh, and I learned a lot of lessons uh, during that six-month stretch. I learned that while the gates of hell will not prevail against the global church, any one particular local church is a house of cards, fragile. I learned that uh, not everybody is inclined to want to put into practice the wisdom laid out in the book of Proverbs um, for us, that there is a biblical injunction to attempt to see with equal clarity multiple points of view. But more than anything, out of that six-month stretch of ministry, I learned the church can be cannibalistic. We devour our own. During that six-month stretch, I received more grace from my pot-smoking college friends than I did the people in my church. So this idea of gospel safety and time, this idea of seeing the church become a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth, isn't for me just born out of theological conviction. It's born out of experiential desire. So we've been looking at this subject these last couple of weeks. We're going to finish looking at it today. Before we do that, I want to review what I mean by each of these. If the church is going to be a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth, if the church is going to give people a taste of heaven to come, if people are going to walk through the doors of of our church gatherings and leave saying, you know, there is something very different about this group of people, if that's going to happen, we have to offer people three things. We have to offer them lots of gospel, lots of safety, and lots of time. First, gospel. 
We need to offer people multiple exposures to the happy news of the gospel from one end of the Bible to the other. And that's something both non-Christians and Christians need. The gospel is not just the truth non-Christians need to believe in order to be saved. The gospel is the truth Christians need to believe in order to be transformed. Additionally, the gospel is not just something we encounter in the New Testament. It's not just something we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or in Paul. The gospel is on every page of the scriptures. We looked at that last week from John 5 and Luke 24. So people need multiple exposures to this happy news from one end of the Bible to the other. Second, people need the safety of non-accusing sympathy so they can admit their problems honestly. And we don't make it safe for sin. If we made it safe for sin, the church would no longer be safe. But we make it safe for people to say, hey, (laughs) I'm really struggling with this. I'm really battling against that. We make it safe for people to be honest about their struggles with sin, their struggles with suffering, their struggles with life. And we respond, not with a wagging finger or with backbiting gossip, but we respond with graciousness and gentleness. And third, people need time. People need plenty of time to rethink their lives at a deep level Because people are complex and changing isn't easy. We are beautifully complicated creatures, which means to see the likeness of Christ take shape in us does not happen overnight. It takes time. So we want to be a church that walks patiently and faithfully with people in their walk with Christ so that they can see the image and likeness of Christ take root in them. Now, last week, we looked at the importance of gospel doctrine. Today, we're going to turn our attention to gospel culture. Every church culture is shaped by the beliefs and convictions those people, the people in that church have. Listen, some of those beliefs are visible on the surface and known to us, but we have beliefs and convictions that lie underneath the surface, invisible, tucked away, hidden away. But those are the beliefs that are most influential in shaping a church's culture. I want to make sure we all have that clear. It is not our visible stated beliefs that roll off the tips of our tongues every week that shape a church's culture. It's the stuff lying underneath the surface we may not even be aware of that is most influential in shaping that church's culture. And I want to work to expose that today. But I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. The Apostle Paul actually did all the heavy lifting for us with this in a letter he wrote to a church in Corinth. This, this church in Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece, uh, was, in, was, was not gospel culture. It was not a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth. It's an, it serves as a negative example to us. It was anti-gospel culture. They had divisions. They had factions. They had disunity. They had backbiting. It was a mess. And throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul makes appeal after appeal after appeal to them to change course. But his climactic appeal comes to us in the form of perhaps one of the most famous scripture passages known today. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13. You prefer to work with a smartphone or... um, or a tablet, go for it. 
This passage gets its fame because it's often read at weddings. It's interesting to note, however, that Paul is not writing to tell spouses how to love each other. He's writing to tell Christians how to treat each other in the church. The institution he has in mind is the church, not marriage, when he describes love in 1 Corinthians 13. Let's read this. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. In order for gospel culture to take root in us, we need to see three things happen. Based on this text, we're going to look at three things that need to happen in our church, in any church, if gospel culture is going to take root. We need to identify the hidden belief detect the hidden belief in ourselves, and destroy and replace our hidden, hidden belief. Identify it, detect it in ourselves, and then destroy and replace it. First, we need to identify the hidden belief. So the church in Corinth has anti-gospel culture. It's, it's anything but a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth. When the people walk through the doors of that church, they're not ge- being given a breath of fresh air. But you'll notice that this anti-gospel culture is characterized by impressive, visible, outward, religious performance. Please catch that. On the surface, visibly, to the naked eye, this church looks like it has a lot going for it. They're speaking in tongues. They're prophesying. They're giving generously to the poor. They're demonstrating faith that can move mountains. Some of them are giving their bodies over to hardship. That's a little weak. Some of them are being martyred for the faith they profess. On the outside, it looks like this church has a lot happening. It's got a lot going for it. But for each of them, Paul says... They're without love. He is trying to expose the hidden belief lying underneath the surface that many of them may not even be aware of. They are without love. See the repetition. If I can do all this, but don't have love, I'm nothing. If I can do all that, but don't have love, I'm nothing. He's exposing the hidden belief. The hidden belief is that they are loveless. Visibly, on the outside, there's a lot happening that looks good. Impressive, external, religious performance. But they don't have gospel culture. 
because they have a hidden belief that is quietly shaping the culture more powerfully than anything they say they believe. And their hidden belief is lovelessness. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean to be loveless? There's a little phrase in verse 3 where Paul cracks open the curtain just a little bit to let some light in so we can see this lovelessness. He says, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast. That I may boast. This is the core of lovelessness. This is the core of the thing, the animal that feeds anti-gospel culture. Boasting. Now, what does it mean to boast? The, the quiet, unspoken voice of boasting says this. Look at what I've done. Now, give me your praise. Look at what I've done. Now, stand in awe of me. Look at what I've done. Now give me your gratitude. Do you hear the quiet, unspoken voice of boasting? Look at what I've done. Now stand in awe of me. Look at what I've done. Now give me your praise. Look at what I've done. Now give me your gratitude. Do you see at the core of lovelessness, at the core of boasting, is an attitude that approaches giving in order to get something? Lovelessness is giving in order to get something. Just a couple of verses later, Paul describes lovelessness as self-seeking. Giving in order to get something. See, on the surface, our religious practices and deeds may be impressive. But unbeknownst to us, they may be driven by an invisible motivational dynamic of give to get. That is ultimately what shapes a church's culture. Spurgeon illustrated it this way. He said, uh, he, he talked about the, uh, the farmer. This farmer grew an enormous carrot. He brought the carrot to his king. He said, my Lord, uh, this is the finest carrot I have ever grown or ever hoped to grow, and I'm presenting it to you as a token of my love and respect. And uh, the king discerned the a farmer's heart, and he said, I have a field that lies next to yours. It's yours. I'm doubling your property. And the farmer went home rejoicing. Meanwhile, a nobleman in the court overheard this conversation, and he thought to himself, hmm, a field for a carrot? So the next day, he brought to the king a magnificent stallion. He said to his king, my lord, this, I breed horses, the finest horse I've ever bred or ever will breed, and I'm presenting it to you as a token of my love and respect. And the king discerned the nobleman's heart, and he said to him, you disgust me. And the nobleman said, what? What's the matter? King said, the farmer was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. So we have two people. We got one over here, broken, messed up, standing up, falling down, but giving God carrots. We have another person over here, incredible self-discipline, decency, 
gives generously to the church, attends church all the time, is involved in everything. And he's giving God stallions. One is delighting God's heart. The other is disgusting him. Why? Why? Think about yourself for a minute. Why do you pray? Why do you come to church? Why do you give? To get a comfortable life? To get God to answer your prayers, to get him to bless you, to get him to let you into heaven? But the person over here, the one who's messed up, standing up, falling down, stumbling over his feet, but not giving in order to get something is delighting God's heart. We don't play this game with God alone. We play this game with each other too. There's a place in Mere Christianity where C.S. Lewis says, if you do him a good turn not to please God, but to show him what a fine, forgiving chap you are and to put him in your debt and then sit down to wait for his gratitude, you will probably be disappointed. See, Lewis is saying, look, we might do some really nice stuff for the people around us. Why? Why did you do that nice thing for that person? Why did you take them out for lunch, take them out for coffee, give them that encouragement note, give them that gift card? Lewis is aware of our hidden belief. He's, a, he's aware of the fact that this hidden belief of give to get may be tucked away in the inner recesses of our beings. He knows that we can do some really nice things for people. Whether we know it or not, it might be motivated by this dynamic of give to get. See, on the surface, our visible beliefs and practices may look really good. But when they're driven by this give-to-get motivational dynamic, it's ultimately self-seeking. It's antithetical to love. And it creates anti-gospel culture. That's the hidden belief. So how do we, secondly, detect this in ourselves? Surely that's not me. Surely that's not me. I don't, I don't struggle with this give-to-get motivational dynamic. That might be, but let's see. In verses 4 to 8, Paul paints a picture of love for us. And actually, he doesn't paint a picture of love. He confronts us with a picture of love in verses 4 to 8. Now, notice the places where love is portrayed in those words... In emotional terms, love doesn't dishonor others. Just stop there for a minute. If you were to walk out into the lobby and see one person dishonoring another, what emotions do you think you would hear or detect or see? What vibe would that conversation give off? Dishonoring one another. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. What emotions would you pick up if that stuff was happening in a church? Do you hear these emotions of resentment, 
irritability, bitterness, backbiting. Do you hear the emotions in these terms? So let's just talk turkey here for a minute. You know why we're irritable all the time? We're irrit- you know why we're irritable with God and others? We're irritable with God and others because we believe, at the core, we believe God owes us. That's the bottom line. Burrow through all the surface stuff. The reason we're chronically irritable, we're chronic backbiters, chronic criticizers, is that we believe God, life, and the universe owe us. We've paid our dues. We've been kind. We've been nice. And now we're sitting back and we're waiting for God, the universe, and life in general to say thank you to us. That's why we're chronically irritable, chronically demanding, chronically picking each other's scabs. At the root of it, at the root of it, is this belief that God, life, and the universe owe me. That's what Lewis was saying. He's saying if you do something really nice for someone and then you sit back and wait for their gratitude, you're going to be disappointed. This is what Paul is saying. The reason we're chronically unhappy is that we gave a king a stallion. We gave the king a stallion. But he hasn't given me anything in return. This is why we're chronically unhappy, irritable, criticizing. At the bottom of it, at the core of it, is this motivational dynamic that I have paid my dues. Now God, life, and the universe owe me. So do I have that? I can ask myself some questions to help figure that out. Do I have a critical spirit? Am I prone to jump to the critical remark when I hear about someone's story or hear about another person? Am I chronically unhappy? Am I chronically irritable? Am I easily angered? Do I hang on to grudges? This characterized the church in Corinth. They had anti-gospel culture. They had divisions, factions, conflict, because ultimately they operated under the hidden belief of give to get. So if we're going to cultivate gospel culture in our church, we not only have to be able to label the give to get belief, the self-seeking love, We have to be able to identify it, detect it in ourselves. Once we've done that, we have to move on to the third thing, and that is we have to destroy and replace it. So how do we do that? There is no way to gospel culture other than through gospel doctrine. You can't get there any other way. The only way to gospel culture is through gospel doctrine. Doctrine. So if we're going to destroy and replace the hidden motivational dynamic of give to get, self-seeking, boasting, we have to take the gospel and we have to rub it into our lives. We have to pound it into our lives. We have to preach it to ourselves daily, hourly, minutely, if we have to. The only way to gospel culture is through gospel doctrine. We have to saturate ourselves in it. It's the only way we get there. 
So let me show you how I might do this in my own life. And I'm going to do that by, by setting up a purely fictional scenario, okay? And then, and then we'll work the gospel into it. Purely fictional scenario, okay? Here, here's a possible scenario. I don't have anybody in mind when I say this, okay? Joe gives generously to his church. If your name is Joe, I don't have you in mind. Just so we're clear about this. Okay, Joe, Joe gives generously to his church. But like the, uh, and, and like the church in Corinth, on the outside it looks good. Visibly great, impressive. But let's just say Joe is operating according to the give-to-get belief. The give-to-get motivational dynamic. So the million-dollar question then becomes, what does he want? couple of possibilities. Well, maybe he wants to put the church in his debt. So if he ever wants something to be done at the church, the leaders will have to listen to him because they will fear losing his financial support. That's one possibility. Or maybe he's giving generously so that if the church leaders decide to do something he doesn't like, he can threaten them by drawing attention to the ramifications of not having his financial support. Okay? Give to get. How do we work the gospel into this? Joe's going to get free of it. If he's going to destroy and replace this, he's got to rub the gospel into his life. So how does he do that? Well, last week we looked at a definition of the gospel. And just by way of review, here's it, here it is. We are created by and accountable to God. So you could stop there and take that part of gospel doctrine and rub it into his life. And, and Joe, maybe through that, could come to see that every penny he has is, ultimately belongs to God. He's a temporary manager of what God has given him, and he'll be held accountable for what he did with his money and why he did the things with his money by God one day. That's one way to rub the gospel into it. Our problem is our sin against him. God's solution is salvation through Jesus Christ. We come to be included in that salvation by repentance and faith. So here's what I want to do. That's, that's long. And it'd be great if you meditated on that, memorized that, worked that, pound that in your prayer life, into your heart, into your mind. But I want to give you a shortened version of it so when you leave today, you can have this statement on the tip of your brain and you're going to preach it every day as you look in the mirror to the person staring back at you. Okay? At the bottom line... Uh, Jesus on a cross means I'm a totally loved moral failure. Jesus on a cross means I'm a totally loved moral failure. You want the gospel in nutshell form, that's it. I'm a totally loved moral failure. So let's, let's work this into Joe's life. On the one hand, he's a moral failure. Which means, anything the slightest bit better than hell he enjoys today is only by God's mercy. Might we have an overinflated view of what we think we're entitled to? Anything the slightest bit better than hell he enjoys today is only by God's mercy. For a church not to give him something he wants or to withhold something he doesn't want, that's a blip on the radar compared to what he deserves. He's not owed anything. This could radically alter Joe's use of money and the reasons, his motivations, for using money the way he's using them. 
But it doesn't end there. If we stopped there, Joe would be sent into the pits of despair. So we don't stop there. We work the whole gospel into it. I'm a totally loved moral failure. He's totally loved. Because Joe is more loved, valued, and cherished than he ever dared dream, there is a limit to how much life circumstances impact his joy. So his church doesn't do something he wanted them to do. Big deal. He's already more loved, valued, and cherished than he ever dared dream. Okay, so the church doesn't put this fixture in or start this ministry. He's already more loved, valued, and cherished than he ever dared dream. How much more joy can adding the fixture ministry give to him? I'm a totally loved moral failure. Let's say you do something really nice for someone, but they don't respond with the kind of gratitude you had hoped hoped for. Here's the question. Why did you do that? Why did you do that? Did, Did you do that nice thing for them in order to get gratitude from them? Now, you might say, no, dig deeper. What are your emotions telling you? You're a little bit irritated with them, aren't you? Ah, the hidden belief. It lies underneath the surface that oftentimes we're not aware of. If you're irritated, the hidden belief you have is give to get. It's loveless. So preach the gospel to yourself. I'm a totally loved moral failure. I'm a moral failure. For anyone to say thank you is a gift. Because I'm not owed gratitude. I'm a moral failure. I'm not entitled to gratitude. But I'm also totally loved. So I don't really need anyone's gratitude. I'm already more loved, valued, cherished than I ever dared dream. So there is a limit to how much of a rush someone's gratitude can give me. I've already received the ultimate rush through Christ being embraced in the arms of a holy, infinite God. Someone's gratitude pales in comparison to that. I'm a totally love moral failure, so I'm not owed gratitude. And I don't need gratitude. Let's say you serve somewhere. Maybe it's in the church. Maybe it's out in the community somewhere. I don't know. You give tirelessly of your time, your energy, but no one seems to recognize that. Question, are you serving in order to garner recognition? Your lips say no, but what's your heart saying? Are you a little bit miffed by that? Preach the gospel to yourself. I'm a totally love moral failure. Because I'm a moral failure, I'm not entitled to recognition. I'm not entitled to recognition. Nobody owes me recognition. Because I'm totally loved, I don't really need recognition. In Christ, I am more loved, valued, and cherished than I ever dared dream. How much more recognition does one need? The gospel doctrine of of, I'm a totally loved moral failure destroys the give to get belief and at the same time it replaces it 
The two primary heart dynamics of give to get are fueled by pride and insecurity. That's why we do it this way. We give in order to prop up our pride. We give in order to strengthen our insecure view of ourselves. This is why we do it. Deep down, we know there's something wrong with us. And so we look for ways to try to fix that. Often, it's self-centered ways of trying to fix that. We look for it within ourselves. So I accomplished this great thing to help mend the fragile outlook I have on who I am. Or I try to do this great thing because I'm trying to demonstrate my glory to a world that desperately wants my glory. But when I preach the gospel doctrine of a totally loved moral failure, you know what it does? It has a humbling effect which chops down pride to where it belongs. But when I say I'm a totally loved moral failure, it builds me up. It provides me with security. Humility, security simultaneously. The gospel is not just an historical event. It affects the heart. The only way to gospel culture is through gospel doctrine. There's a pastor who tells a story. He officiated a wedding and um, at, uh, at the reception, the, uh, the best man who was the brother of the groom got up to give his speech, his toast. And the, the best man stood up. He looked over at his brother, the groom, and the first words out of his mouth were, it's no secret to anyone here that I have never liked you. He went on. He said, all our lives we've fought and argued. We've been like oil and water. We are still very different in many ways, but I have grown to love the person you have become since the day you met her. The more you're with her, the more I'm drawn to you. The more you're with her, the more I want to be around you. The more you're with her, the more you are becoming the best version of yourself. If I was sitting in the room, part of me would want to say, awkward. (laughs) But there is a sweetness to it. There is a sweetness to it. And it's wonderfully illustrative for us today. The more we ponder the gospel, meditate on the gospel, preach the gospel, bathe in the gospel, saturate ourselves in the gospel, poke the gospel, rub the gospel into our lives, the more we will become the best version of ourselves. The more those outside our community will look at our community and say, I want what they have. The more those outside our community will say, can I be a part of this community? Because whatever it is you have, I can't find anywhere else. When we ponder the gospel, we preach the gospel, we meditate on the gospel, we work the gospel, we rub the gospel into our lives, we will start to see ABC become a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes?
I gave you a lot to think about today. So I just want to give us a minute here to uh, ponder it. Psalm 26 says, Test me, Lord. Examine my heart and my mind. Let's ask him to do that now. This self-seeking nature we're born with is pervasive. It has a gravitational pull that sucks us into it. Frankly, we need God's spirit to help us identify it in ourselves. Let's take a minute to ask him to do that. And then confess it to him. on a cross means I'm a totally loved moral failure. Why don't you meditate on that just for a minute? Father, I do pray for Alliance Bible Church. I pray we would be cognizant to saturate ourselves in the gospel. That we would learn to preach it to ourselves daily. I pray that through your spirit doing a work in us, that we would begin to see humility and security bred simultaneously in our community. So that we can be freed up to truly love and serve other people for your sake and their sake alone. Pray that your spirit would shape this community of believers into a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth. And I do pray, God, that when people experience us, they would walk away from it knowing without a doubt they have experienced something positively different. these things because we want to make much of your son Jesus Christ in whose name we pray